Well, for those of you who are new today, my name is Pastor Mike. A special welcome to you. In fact, uh, how many newcomers do we have? We have any newcomers today? I know we have some back here. We got some there. Uh, any over here? Any newcomers over here? Going right down here. Great. Welcome. Okay. And some shy ones. All right. Welcome. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our uh, series that we're in today, uh, and inside of your weekend program is a white message note sheet that will help you follow along as we go into our time of teaching. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for what you're doing here uh, at our church. God, thank you for the way you're waking us up, the sleeping giant, and we are awaking and letting you shine on us uh, for the new things you have for us as a church and as your followers. And today, Lord, this is the next step in that journey. Today's a very important day. I know that. And so, Lord God, we pray now that you would come and meet us by your Holy Spirit right here, right now. And then by the time we leave and go out to get baptized, we will know that we've been spoken to by the King. And we pray that in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today in the, uh, the late 1960s. And I realize that some of you, well, you kind of missed the 60s. Um, uh, a lot of you weren't born then, and some of you were alive, but you still missed the 60s. <laughs> But um, it's the late 60s, and uh, uh, our, our man of the hour is a guy named Bernard. You may recognize him as we go on. But uh, Bernard was a, a pro-abortion doctor, uh, kind of a big advocate in the late 60s. And, and in 1970s, um, when New York liberalized their, their uh, abortion laws, he actually opened the largest abortion clinic in the whole United States in New York City. It was called CRASH, the Center for Reproductive and Sexual Health. And uh, over the next few years, he would preside over this organization, 60,000 abortions. And, uh, and then in 73, the Supreme Court ruled abortion legal in the United States, and he decided to make a career move, and he moved out of uh, uh, the abortion industry, and he became, moved across town to St. Luke's Hospital and became the head of OB. So he moved from being the head of abortion to the head of taking care of pregnant moms and their, their babies. And it was at that time, uh, shortly after that, that one day he was there at St. Luke's. He had a bunch of residents around him. It was a teaching hospital. And, uh, and they were in a room, and it was, he, he had never seen an ultrasound before. It was, they were brand new in those days, and it was cutting-edge hospital. It was the first time he was going to see an ultrasound. So he had the residents around him, pregnant mom. The, the operator turns the lights off, and boom, ultrasound goes on. And there, for the first time, he sees an unborn baby in the mother's womb. And he is blown away. I mean, he just cannot believe the clarity. He can see the baby's eyes, the baby's nose, the baby's mouth, see the forehead. He can see the hands, all five fingers, uh, you know, four fingers and a thumb on each, each hand. And he can see the heart beating, all four chambers of the heart operating. And he was, it was just, it took his breath away. And it wasn't very long after that that he decided that he thought abortion was wrong. And so um, he actually began to write articles on this. He wrote a very um, powerful article for the New England Journal of Medicine, which if you're in that field, you know what a prestigious journal that is, uh, arguing against abortion. And the whole world was blown away. I mean, here is the, the pro-abortion doctor in the United States, head of CRASH, who is now saying that it's wrong. And not only is he saying wrong, he's not saying it's wrong on religious reasons. It's not a spiritual reason. He's not a spiritual guy. He, he grew up as a Jew, but he was a very outspoken atheist uh, at this point in his life. Had nothing to do with spiritual convictions. It was just based on the scientific evidence that he could see before him, the life against the conception. So he was arguing against it. And by the end of the 70s, he was out of the business altogether. We no longer do abortions. In the 80s, he became a powerful voice in the pro-life movement. And he, uh, he actually uh, produced a film called The Silent Scream that was very powerful. It was a gruesome film, really. It was a, a part of the film that showed actual footage of a suction abortion on, done on a 12-week-old baby. And you could see the baby in the womb trying to fight to get away from the suction. And then when, this, when the baby started coming apart and being sucked apart in, in the limbs, when, when that started to happen, um, you could see what looked like a scream of horror on the baby's face. And so... So by this time, he was, you know, moving away from it, and yet it was at that time in the mid-80s that he began to experience a silent scream in his own life. And it wasn't a, a physical thing, it was an emotional thing. It was all these, these deaths, these 60,000 deaths that he'd been responsible for were now were mounting up on his conscience. 
And he couldn't take it anymore. And it was beginning, his guilty conscience was just getting him so depressed that he was having nightmares. And, and every night he would have these nightmares that were getting worse and more vivid. And every time it was the same, he was being strangled or suffocated. And then he would wake up and he just couldn't escape it. And so he started looking for help. He started going to therapists. He got, went to self, started reading self-help books. He got antidepressants. Uh, he started having alternate religious experiences, seeking he went to some of the old rabbis to see, hey, is there anything you can help me to atone for my sin? But nothing would work. And the longer it went on, the more suicidal he became. And so finally, at that point in his life, he did something he thought he would never do. Remember, he was a, a Jew born in New York City. And he began to investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. And so now we see him. It's 1996. It's a cold December morning. And as we look across, if you've ever been to St. Uh, Patrick's Cathedral, there in very famous ancient church uh, in New York City, from a distance we can see him. He's walking down the back stairs into the basement of St. Patrick's. Today we're continuing our series. It's a series called The Way. And for those of you who are new, um, it's a series, it's a study of the life and the teaching of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest spiritual leaders of all time. And in this series, what we're doing is we're coming alongside of him as a church, as a movement here at Rocky Peak to help us understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that Jesus started that in the early church was first called the way in the book of Acts? And every week our strategy is the same. We start off with the book of Romans which is Paul's longest and most famous letter. And in the book of Romans, uh, we start there and then we launch off, use it as a gateway into other of his writings. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know that we've just finished uh, what we call the first mini-series in Romans. Romans 1 through 4, we called it Fallen and Forgiven. Because it was the story of the human race, how we fell away from God, what God has done to bring us back and forgive us. Now we just started the second mini-series in Romans. It covers chapters 5 through 8. We've called it Rescued and Restored. Because Paul wants to talk to us now that we've come into relationship with Jesus and we've been rescued from our past, what does it look like to be restored and to become the people we were created to be? And so we've spent the last couple weeks in chapter 5. And if you were here two weeks ago, you know at the end of chapter 5, um, Paul says that the story of the human race can really be boiled down to the tale of two men. Remember that? It's the story of Adam and the story of Christ. That through Adam, Adam led the race into rebellion. And as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we're all born in rebellion. We're all born with his spiritual DNA. We're all born at odds with God. We're all destined for death, right? But through Christ has come, and when a man or a woman decides to follow Jesus, that through Christ we get to receive the benefits of his obedience, his life, his death, and resurrection. And we can be born anew and connected with Jesus spiritually, and we can rise to a new life, not only now but in the future. Now, at the end of chapter 5, though, the Apostle Paul made a statement. And it went like this. He said, as the sin of the human race increased, that God's grace increased to meet that need. In other words, no, far, no matter how far wrong you go in your life, God's grace will always increase to meet your fallenness. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And so, so anyway... So some of Paul's critics come along and they take his teaching and they want to twist it. And so he says, let me get this straight, Paul. So what you're saying is the worse we are, the better God gets, so to speak. Hey, well, if that's true, why don't we just believe in Jesus and keep on sinning? Because the more we sin, the more grace we'll get, the more forgiveness we'll get, we'll experience his love. So the best way to experience God's love is to be bad. Yeah. So that is the issue that Paul is going to be uh, asked, the, start, the, the question that he starts chapter 6 with. Should we continue in sin after we're coming to Christ so that God's grace will increase? All right? So let's take our Bibles. Let's see what he says. We'll look at the first 11 verses. And in the process, 
Paul's going to lay out for us what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus and how does baptism fit into that? What's baptism all about? So uh, chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we, go, shall we go on sinning, you know, now that we're Christians, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul says, by no means. We died to sin. Now, I want you to underline that in your Bibles. We died to sin. The Apostle Paul says, if you are a Christ follower today, you've died to sin. At some point in your past, you died to sin. Now, of course, the question is, well, when would that be? When was that day? And the answer is going to surprise some of us. Because what Paul is going to say is the day you died is the day you were baptized. That's what he's going to say. So he says, verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us, catch this, no exceptions. In the early church, there were no unbaptized believers. That would be an oxymoron. That would be like a unmarried wife. Just doesn't work. And so don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So when did we die? Paul says, well, when you were baptized. You were baptized into his death. Something happened there. That on that day that you were baptized, that you died to who you were in Adam. You, you were a son and daughter of Adam, but you died to that. And you were somehow, in a spiritual way, united with Christ. I like to think of it in computer terms. You were like networked to Christ. Before you were networked to Adam, you shared his spiritual DNA. Now you are networked to Christ. And so the benefits of everything Christ has on his mainframe get downloaded into your life, into your terminal. <laughs> That's getting out there. All right. <laughs> I, my name's R2D2. No, uh, all right. So, um, yeah, geek. Um, all right, so then he goes on. He says, now, verse 4. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism. So catch this. He's, he's saying, not only were you died with Christ, I mean, you were really dead. You were buried with him. Okay? You, were, you were buried with him through baptism. There he says it again. Into death. In order that, why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. So Paul says that should we continue in sin? The question is, should we continue in sin? He says, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? You died to sin. When did that happen, Paul? That happened the day you were baptized. And that day, you died with Christ and were buried with Christ. And then you rose with Christ a new life. It is the great divide. That every Christian's life, there is a line. And it's, an, it's the B-C-A-D line. It's the before Christ, it's the in the year of our Lord. That before you were before Christ, you were lost. You were alienated from God. You weren't connected with God. And Paul says through your baptism, you died to who you were in Adam. And you stepped into the year of our Lord and you came up and you live a new life. You see? It's the great divide. Now, if you're anything like me, and maybe you've been raised in a church or you've had, you know, uh, you can know your Bible pretty well or whatever. You have some background. If you're a new Christian, you're probably like, okay, I get it. But uh, if, you've been, if you've kind of been raised, especially in evangelical circles, if you're anything like me, you're probably getting a little nervous right now. It's a little bit like, Wait a second, Paul. Now, what are you saying there? Wait a second. Are, are you saying that, I mean, you're not saying like there's something like magical in the water, are you? I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying that you're not really a Christian or not really saved until you're baptized. Is that what you're saying? Are you saying it's not possible, you're not really saved until you're a Christian? I think Paul would answer two ways. His first answer would be, no, I'm not saying that. His second answer would be, that is the weirdest question I've ever heard. Let me tell you what I mean. 
and the early church that coming to Jesus was a package deal. We've separated it out in a kind of our modern Christianity and like, okay, well, now this is the point you believe in Jesus. This is the point, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I haven't really repented. <laughs> uh, I believe in Jesus today. I want to be saved, but oh, I'll get serious about following him and repenting maybe 10 years later. And then when I get really serious, maybe I'll get baptized down here. So we've separated this whole thing out. The Bible knows nothing of that. Coming to Jesus is a package deal. You, you believe in Jesus. You turn from your past. You get baptized. You receive the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. And because it's a package deal, you can talk about any part of the package as if it's the whole package. You see? You know, like when you buy a car, you buy the upgrade package. You know, if you buy the upgrade package X, uh, XLS or whatever, you get all the ingredients. And it's like when you come to Jesus, the whole thing. You know, it's, yes, it's the baptism, it's the faith, it's the, the repentance, it's the Holy Spirit. It just all happens. We'll see that as we, we go on. And so it's, it's, it'd be so weird. Like, I think for Paul, this concept of Paul, are you saying that it's, po that it's, is it, are you saying that it's possible to be like not to be saved until you're baptized. Is that what you're saying? He would just look like, that's the weirdest question. Uh, it'd be like, it'd be like a man, imagine someone getting married and, and there's, there's different ingredients, right? You got the vows, you got the rings, you got the pronouncement. And can you imagine the groom standing there and then you get done with the vows and the, 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 the groom says, oh, wait a second, uh, pastor, uh, are, are we married now? Well, we need to finish the ceremony. Wait, but are we married? We just said our vows. Well, let's just go on. And we put the rings on. Okay, you put the rings on. Hey, oh, excuse me. Are, are we married yet? Are we married yet? I just want to know. Because if we are, I wanna, I'm out of here. I just want to know. And, and then it's like, just hold on, hold on. And then you get through, you get through the kiss and the pronouncement. Are we married now? Because I just want to know. You see? It'd be like, well, what a weird wedding that would be. And yet, in a sense, that's what we've done in the church. Well, I believe in Jesus. Am I done now? Am I done? Oh, I, repentance? Okay, okay. Well, am I done now? Uh, well, I have to be bad. You see, no, it's a package deal. And we'll see this very clearly today. So in the early church, when a person became a Christian, um, they didn't raise their hand while every eye is closed and every head is bowed. <laughs> they didn't walk forward as the choir sings, just as I am. They didn't take out their keep in touch card and write on it, I prayed the prayer. Will you send me the letter? <laughs> now, is there anything wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. I'm a legalistic here. But all I'm saying is the early church didn't do it that way. The early church is like when you wanted to become a follower of Jesus, you became a follower of Jesus. And the way you did that is you got in the water and you went down. You went down to your old life and you came up to a new life. And you didn't wait nine weeks or three years or 18 years, whatever. You just, this is just what you did. In the early church, baptism was the initiation rite into the body of Christ. Did you catch on that, on the, the, uh, when Lovey's testimony? Did you catch in there, she talked about initiation rite into gangs? Like when you go to a gang, there's an initiation rite, right? And then you don't leave. Once you're in, you don't leave. That's the theory, at least. Uh, Jesus didn't really, didn't read the book, but, but that's the theory. Uh, if you're in college, you go to fraternity or sorority, you join, there's an initiation, right? Well, what's the initiation right into the church of Jesus Christ? It's baptism. You see, that was the, that's what you did. Now, let's go on. Chapter uh, 6 and verse 5. He says, if we've been united with him, in other words, in baptism, is death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And once you go in the water and you're baptized with Jesus and you're a believer, you're in with the resurrection. You're going to get a new life when you come out, but also when he comes back, you're going to get a new body, right? You're going to get just a resurrection body like his, which that is sounding good to me the older I get. Verse 6, for we know it used to not mean a whole lot, you know, but it's really taken on new meaning with each passing year. Verse 6, for we know that our old self, our old man, the old Adam, was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with. 
So we would no longer be slaves to sin. Next week, uh, or next time we're talking to Romans, it's going to be the whole topic is on uh, slavery to sin and, and what it means to be set free from sin, this destructive power in our life that destroys us. Right? So he says um, in verse 7, because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, and again, remember in baptism, we believe that we will also live with him in the next life and, and a new life here and now. For, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In other words, when Jesus died, he did not die for his own sin. When you and I die, we die because we're part of this sinful human race and our own sin and we die. Jesus didn't die for that. He didn't die because of that. He died because he took our sin. He took the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He took our sin and it killed him. But after he paid the price for that sin, there's nothing less that can touch him. The only thing that could touch Jesus was our sin. And he dealt with our sin. And so now nothing can touch him. He's untouchable. And he will live the rest of his life for God. For God's purposes for his life. And so here's what Paul says. He says in verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, you need to look at yourself the same way. You died with him in baptism. You rose with him in baptism. Your life is not about the old life. Now see, they catch this. You see, the question we started the day with is, well, shall we continue sinning so that grace might increase? And here's what Paul's saying, are you kidding me? Really, the whole reason we got baptism, baptized is because we are sick of the old life. We are sick of being part of Adam's race. We're sick of the fallenness. We're sick of the sin. We're sick of the bitterness. We're sick of the envy. We're sick of the sexual sin. We're sick of ripping on people. We're sick of just being selfish and into ourselves. We're sick of that. We want out of that. But we have no ability to get ourselves out. The only way out would be to die. And so Jesus died for us and he said, let me go first and then I'll pull you with me. And I will die for you and my death will become your death. Just like you were linked to Adam spiritually and his death was your death. Now my death will be your death and my life will be your life. And you can live a whole new life. And I will empower you to do that. Not just now but in the future. And so that's what happens when a person's baptized. They say, I'm sick of my old life. I want to cross over the great divide. I want a new life. And Paul says, don't you get it? Why would you ever want to continue in sin and go back? It would be like if you say you worked in the yard all day on one of these very hot days that we have in this area. And you worked in the yard all day and you mowed the lawn and you weed whacked and you blew your yard and you cut the, the shrubs and you've been working all day and you're digging in the back and you're putting in some new things and you're, you're filthy and you're dirty. And you come in and you say, hey, it's time to go to church. Let's say you all came on Saturday, which none of you do, but let's say you came to come to church. And, and so you, you go in and you take a bath and it feels so good. You take a shower and it feels so good, doesn't it? You've been working all day. You're just filthy and dirty and just grimy. And you get in, you let that hot water just roll over your body, right? At least that's what I do. I don't even start washing. Right? I just want to stand there and just, just soak it in. And then it comes on. And then you start washing up and then you do your hair and you have the suds just kind of coming down all over you, you know? And it's just like, it just feels good. You're just getting clean. And it's like, why would you ever get done with that? And then instead of putting on your fresh clothes and going to church, you go out and say, I'm going to go out and roll in the dirt again. Like how stupid would that be? And Paul says, what are, you, are you kidding me? Everything about baptism says I'm sick of the old life. Why would you ever go back? Don't you get it? Being a follower of Jesus is about living life on a whole new plane, a whole new level. Why would you ever want to go back into those self-destructive, hurtful, painful, ugly ways? You see? So that's the message. And he says, baptism is the great divide where you say, I'm sick of it. I'm done with it. I can't kill myself, but Jesus did it for me. I'm going with it. I'm thinking, Jesus, trust me in this. You're going to have to die first, but you're going to give me a new life on the other side. Okay? So that's the passage. Now, if you look there at your note sheet, there's a section called baptism, a new paradigm. 
And, and I really think as followers of Jesus that we need a new paradigm, a new way of understanding baptism, a New Testament way. I think one of the things that jumps out as you read Romans 6 is what a big deal baptism is. I think it's so significant the Apostle Paul does not say in verse 3, as many of you who, as you who accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, he says as many of you were baptized, right? This is, this is important. And it's not just the Apostle Paul. What we're going to see today is that this is not just Paul, this is Jesus and this is the whole New Testament. They all, it's with one voice, they speak about what baptism is all about. And often what I've seen in evangelical circles, of which I've been a part my whole life, is that we have often mistaught on this. And it's very common in Christian circles. I see this all the time, like whenever we do our partnership classes here for people who want to join Rocky Peak. Whenever we do those classes, uh, people that want to be, uh, come a partner with us, uh, they, they need to be baptized. And all the time, I'll have, see people that, when did you become a Christian? 1973, 1992, 19, uh, 2001, 2005, but I haven't been baptized. It's very common. And we'll talk about why that is later, but, we've, but we see we've, we're out of step with Jesus in the New Testament, very much out of step. Um, I've even, you know, sometimes you'll come across someone, they'll say, well, baptism really not that important. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. And we say it enough to where we believe it, and yet we ignore the whole New Testament. You see? And what we'll see today as we're going through this is for the early church, for Jesus, baptism is the initiation rite that you, you cross over. Just like in the gang. One of the stories that uh, Lovey didn't have time to tell on her, on her uh, video. Great story is that that day, that day when she's out there sharing the message of Jesus and they have that prayer and it comes time to give people a chance to give their life to Christ and over 100 people gave their life to Christ. One of the things that happened is that many of the people went in the middle of the street and they laid down their narcotics, they laid down some guns but they also took off their colors and put them down. Now you understand what that means in, in, that, in that world, in the gang world. It's like the color is what says you're part of. You don't take off your colors. Like she said, that could be, lead to like a death threat. That could be like a death sentence in your life. And so, but what happens in a gang is when you join the gang, you put on your colors. And when you leave the gang, which is rare, you take off your colors. Can I understand, you understand this? In the church of Jesus Christ, baptism is where you lay down the gang colors of Adam and you pick up the gang colors of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? That's what it's about. The baptism is the great divide. Now, um, we're going to take a, a little walk through the New Testament here, especially the book of Acts, and a little bit of the Gospels, and talk about this in the New Testament. Let me, let me lay it out for you. There in your notes, you have got all the verses. If you want to use your own Bible, you're welcome. But I put them out because we're going to be moving rapidly. Um, Jesus, of course, started the ball ro rolling, right? He was, uh, he, he was baptized himself by John the Baptist and is a model for us to follow. And when he left planet Earth, he gathered his disciples together, his men together, and he said, I'm leaving. I'm turning my movement over to you. You're in charge now. And he gave them some final instructions on how to run the movement. And so these become marching orders for us today as a church of Jesus. And so let's look what he says. It's in Matthew 28, famous passage called the Great Commission. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I am in charge of the universe. That's what he's saying. I've died, I rose again, my father has turned over the cosmos to me. All authority in heaven and earth, and I'm the king of kings now. I'm the Lord of lords. Remember what it says in Philippians, that because he became lower than a servant, that God gave him a name that was above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee would bow. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I've done what I've assigned to do. I made myself lower than a servant. I am now the king of the universe. That's what he's saying, all authority. And so he's speaking to us as his church as King Jesus. He's speaking to us as King Jesus. This is your marching orders, Church of Rocky Peak. Okay, so here we go. So he says, um, I he says, uh, all authority in heaven has, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Disciple is just a simple New Testament word for Christ's follower, what we would call a Christian today. It's not high-class Christian. It's not committed Christian. It's just a normal word for a Christian. 
Go and make disciples of all nations. And then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Okay, so here's our marching orders. Share the message of Jesus. Number one. When people buy into Jesus, step number one, baptize them. In the name. Now this is big Bible language. In the name. The name of, in the name of, under the banner of. They become part of the movement. They become part of Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When they buy in, first thing you do is you initiate them and you bring them under the name. You see? And then, after they're in the movement, then teach them to obey everything I've taught you. Help them to understand how to live their life as I would live my life, their life, if I were them. Teach them to obey. And that's what we do here. We come to church here on the weekends not to get a notch in our spiritual belt, not just to get a spiritual uplift. We come to church to learn how to obey everything Jesus taught us. And that's why we go to our small groups each week to say, how does that work out in your life? How does it work out in my life? I'm, I want to learn how to obey Jesus. Can you help me? I'll help you if you help me. And that's what the church, we come together here to learn how to obey Jesus. If we're not doing that, then we're not what the church of Jesus is about, right? And so he says, okay, you got this movement. You start it off, you baptize people. That's their, their entrance into the movement. Then you teach them to obey. Now, the early church, they believed this. They bought into this. And so in Acts chapter 2, when, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and the church was given birth, Peter gets up. He shares the message of Christ with the crowds. 3,000 people come to Christ that day. They don't know what it means to be a Christian. This is brand new stuff. So they turn to the apostle Peter and say, what shall we do next? What's our next step? And look what he says here. In chapter 2, Acts 2, Peter says, well, you need to repent, which means to turn around from your old life and begin to follow Jesus. And, and then you need to be baptized. He catches every one of you, no exceptions. In the name of Jesus Christ, why would we be baptized? For, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, interesting here. You see, in our modern mindset, we read that, wait a second, be baptized for the forgiveness. Don't I just ask Jesus to forgive me? Then I just do this baptism that sometimes lays a symbol. But that's how Peter says. He says, be baptized for the forgiveness. Why? Because in the early church, this is the way you said, Jesus, will you save me? You see, you didn't write your name on the card. You didn't raise your hand. Baptism was the way you said, Lord, I want to follow you. Will you save me? And so he says, he'll be baptized. And he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So catch this. In the same way that a wedding has vows, a wedding has rings, a wedding has a kiss. And so we come to Jesus. We have repentance. And we have baptism. We receive the Holy Spirit. You see what I'm saying? Package deal. They think in terms of package deal. Okay, now I want you to notice something before we leave this passage. Do you notice what's missing in this passage? What's missing is there are no baptism classes. You know what else is missing? There's no probationary period. Let's wait a couple years and see if you're serious about following Jesus because we certainly don't want to baptize anyone who's not serious. And so we're going to check you out for two years. We'll give you two years of teaching. And then once you pass the final exam and you're qualified to be baptized... No. Do you believe in Jesus? He claims who he, yes. Are you willing to leave your old life behind? Yes, I'm sick of it. Do you want to receive the Holy Spirit in a new life? Yes, I do. Well, then come in the water. You see? Very simple. Now, so what happens, this becomes a standard operating procedure, as they say in the Marine Corps, for the church of Jesus Christ. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. In fact, if this, this is an interest in you, I just really encourage you, just read through the book of Acts and see what, what happens with baptism. But what happens as the, as the message of Jesus expands from Jerusalem out into the ancient world, every time it goes to a new major people group, Luke is very careful, the author, to tell us they get baptized. For example, it was the sign that, hey, this people group is now in. 
hey, this people group, they're now in. You see? So when the message of Jesus starts here in Jerusalem, it's just the Jews. We're in the Jews' quadrant. Okay, now in chapter 8, the Samaritans, the half-breeds, the half-Jews, half-non-Jews, they become Christians. Hey, can they be in the kingdom? Yes, the apostles are sent down there so they can receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized. Okay, they're in now. Boom, they're in. They're baptized. They're in. Chapter 10, Peter is called to go and share the message with Gentiles, something unheard of. And right in the middle while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit comes on and they begin speaking in tongues. They all look at each other and go, Bobber, I guess they get the Holy Spirit. Well, if they get the Holy Spirit, I guess they should be baptized. Yep, okay, Gentiles are now in. You see, and Paul very, that Luke very carefully lays this out in Acts. But it's not just with people groups, it's with individuals. Like, give me, let me give you some examples. Great story in chapter 8 of, uh, of uh, Acts. Uh, Philip, one of the leaders of the early church, the Holy Spirit speaks to him one day. Now, I love this because this illustrates so many things, but it shows how, how clear the Holy Spirit can be. The Holy Spirit shows up and he says to Philip, I want you to leave Jerusalem, go outside of town, get on the road, and start walking down on the road that goes towards Gaza. That's pretty specific, isn't it? And I love this because when the Holy Spirit speaks, have you ever noticed this in your life? He usually doesn't tell you like three things at once. He doesn't tell you the end of the story. Have you ever experienced this? When God asks you to take a step of obedience, does he tell you what's going to happen at the end? Very, very seldom. It's like they're my, I always want to, okay, God, well, if I take this step, could you tell me what the next one's going to be so I could decide whether I want to take this one? Right? Like, could you tell me, okay, I'm on the road to Gaza. Like, where are we going? Where are you going with this? Am I going to end up in Rome or something? Like, the Holy Spirit never does that. He just says, okay, one step at a time. And so Philip just obeys. All right. So he goes out. He's walking down the road. Now, as he's walking down the road, uh, up, up comes this African official from Ethiopia, high-ranking uh, uh, Ethiopian official. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit gives second phase two of instructions. Go up and talk to him. Okay? So he goes up there. When he gets up there, the guy is reading his Bible in Isaiah. And he doesn't really understand what he's reading. Apparently he's been to Jerusalem on a spiritual pilgrimage. He's searching for God. He doesn't really get it. He probably wasn't even a Jew yet. But he was, he, was, he was reading the Old Testament scriptures. And so Philip says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Well, no, I don't. There's no one here to explain it to me. Huh, well, I just happen to be in the area. And so Philip begins to explain Jesus from the book of Isaiah. And, the, and, and so the guy buys into it. I get it. I want to follow Jesus. I want you to look what happens. There on your note sheet, Acts, Acts chapter 8. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch, that's the African uh, high official, said, Hey, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Now, you catch this? You catch what's going on? He's like, here's this, this African official. He's like, hey, I get it. Jesus is the Messiah. I want to follow him. I get it. What's holding me back? What, why shouldn't I be baptized? You see that? Now, if I were there, I could think of several reasons. It's a good thing he didn't ask me. I would have said things like, well, we're, we don't have any baptismal certificates out here. Um, gee, we're not even having a church service. This is not, there's not even any Christians around here. You know, it's just kind of you and your buddies, and they don't know the Lord. And Don't you want to wait till your relatives can be there? It's a big day in your life, right? You see? But he gets it. You know what's funny is that um, in other parts of the world, they, they tend to get this better, how important baptism is. Like I've heard this story many times, uh, the, this kind of a situation. Like for example, in India, if you want to, if you live in India and you're, you're not a Christian and you want to check out Jesus, like let's say you're a Hindu or something like that, um, that's often okay. There's often that's okay. If you want to go to church, fine. You want to read your Bible, fine. No problem. But at the point you get baptized, your family will cut you off. See, they get it. 
Baptism is the great divide. They, they get it. It's funny, they get it and we often don't. You see, we as Christians don't get it and the Hindus there do. They understand what baptism is. Baptism is the point you cross over. You change teams. And they get it. Okay. And so the Ethiopian, he gets it. I believe. Here's some water. Why shouldn't I get baptized? What's holding up? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and Philip baptized. And that question he asked, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? That's a great question. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you've never been baptized. It's a great question. Why shouldn't you be baptized? I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find a good answer to that. Okay, now, next story. Acts 16, Paul and Silas. They, uh, they've been in Philippi a short time. They, uh, they've shared the message of Jesus. Very few believers. They get beat up, which is kind of a, a habit of theirs. They get thrown into prison. And uh, while they're in prison, God supernaturally gives them an opportunity to share the message of Jesus with one of the guards, the head guard. Um, he comes to Christ. He takes them out in the middle of the night, takes them home because they're all beat up and, and wounded. And so he's, he heals, he, he cleans up their wounds. While he's in the middle of the night, Paul shares the message of Jesus. Another great opportunity. His, you know, a captive audience, this guy's family. He shares with the whole family. The whole family comes to Christ. And look what happens in chapter 16. At that hour of the night, it's the middle of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately, he and all his family were baptized. Immediately, middle of the night. Why? Well, here's my hunch. First of all, there's hardly any Christians in town. They just came in. The only guy who, who knows anything about it is Paul. He's going to be the guy baptizing, right? He's going back to jail. You don't know when he's going to get out. This guy's like, I don't want to waste any time. We, we want in. Let's get baptized. So the middle of the night. Third story, the apostle Paul. You know, when Paul became a Christian, Jesus appeared to him personally on the road to Damascus. If you remember that story, he went blind from the experience. So bright. The next three days, he was blind, trying to figure out his future, what, what had hit him. And uh, Jesus sends Ananias, a, a Christ follower, to Paul with specific instructions. And when he gets there, look what he says. Acts, uh, Acts 9. Then Ananias went to the house. He entered it. Placing his hands on, on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Now catch this. He calls him Brother Saul. He recognizes Paul has come to Christ. He's not going to somehow become a Christian when he's baptized. He's already a believer. He didn't have to be baptized to be saved. But you can see that's such our current mindset. It's like for them, it was like, if you believe, of course you're going to be baptized. And so he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you can see again and that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. See the package deal again? Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. Now, uh, many years later, Paul was telling this same story when he was on trial. And he added a little bit more. He said, actually, there was more to the story. Ananias had actually said more. I love this. The next verse, Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. Here's what Ananias really said. And now, Paul, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Jesus has appeared to you personally. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, catch this, wash your sins away. Do you see that? Do you see how they don't separate? It's like, well, just get up and have this symbol. I know your sins have already been washed away, but do the symbol thing. You see how it's together? It's like we've seen that twice in X. Wash your sins away. This is all part of this process. Calling on his name, which is an Old Testament way of saying, God, would you save me? Would you deliver me? So he said, hey, call on his name. Call on Christ to save you. Get baptized, wash your sins away, receive the Holy Spirit. It's all, all part of the deal. And so you can see, just from that brief little survey, you can see how important baptism was in the early church. And frankly, we have made it often the optional equipment of the Christian life, haven't we? And, and I think that I don't know exactly where this is going. I just want to be really honest with you as your pastor. I don't know exactly where this is going for us as a church. I don't, I don't know exactly how often we'll do baptisms or will they always be outside or will they still be at peak praise. I can't answer all those questions. Here's what I can tell you though. That about four months ago, I felt God was very clear with me that we were to do this weekend. This weekend and we were to 
embrace the teaching of Romans 6 on baptism and that we were to stop separating it out, that we were to go back to this package deal mentality and that as a church, we are to begin to think of baptism as the great divide, that when a person comes to Jesus, the first thing they're going to do is they want in, they're going to be baptized as the ancient symbol and rite that Jesus gave to his church and said, make disciples, baptizing them and then teaching them. And honestly, I don't know why this is so important to him today. I, I really feel strongly about this that God has put this on my heart that this is the next step for us as a church in this movement that he's doing here. And honestly, I have a question at the back of my mind. I don't know if this part's from the Lord, but I have a question in the back of my mind. If, if God is going to, in the coming months and years, begin to bring many, many people who don't know Christ to Rocky Peak, and he's preparing us now so that we raise them well, so that when they come in, we will raise them well. And the first step to teaching them to obey everything he said is to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to welcome them into the kingdom of God. And so you're leaving your past behind and you're coming in and we all understand it. We all know what this rite means. We all know what this is. This isn't some symbol of something that happened in your life nine years ago. This is now calling on the Lord. It's now asking for his Holy Spirit. And together as a church, we would embrace that. So today... If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized, can I tell you something? The Lord has created this weekend for you. This is all about you. Not normally, but today. All about you. That's what, well, this, is, this weekend is all about you. It's to give you a chance. I mentioned this last week. There's only two reasons why we would be a follower of Jesus and not be baptized. One would be, we just don't know any better. And I think for the vast majority of us who are in that boat today, we go, yes, I never really understood this. I was just told that you were, just like you said it was, that's how I was told. And, and, and I've never really understood that. And so, so let's just call that ignorance, right? That we just didn't know. I don't mean a bad thing, it's just ignorance. We just didn't know. So that's one reason we don't get baptized. But there's a second reason. And the second reason is rebellion. Though we know that he said to do this and we just don't want to do it. Well, as of today, we've removed number one. There is no more ignorance for anyone in this room today, right? It's a church, we understand this. So now all that's left is rebellion, right? And we don't want to be there. We want to follow Jesus. If we want, if we want to follow him in this very first step, who are we kidding that we're followers? <laughs> You know, if it's like, how want to follow Jesus? Okay, your first thing is to, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm going to do it. I'm kind of off. I'm, not, I'm really comfortable with that. You know, it's, seriously, it makes my makeup, it's my hair, it's just, a, I'm telling you. I, I, if I would have known, I would have lost some weight. I'm telling you, but I, I'm, not, I'm not going down that water. It's just like, but um, what's your second thing, Jesus? You got any, any other options? Um, is there a church that just sprinkles maybe or something? Um, all right, so. So if you've come today and you're prepared and you've got your change of clothes and you've got your, your towel, uh, you're ready to go. If you've come today and God's speaking to your heart and you're unprepared, we are so prepared for you. We went to Costco and we bought towels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. First I bought stock, then I bought towels. As I, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so we got towels. In fact, we even have this old inventory of old Rocky Peak shirts and t-shirts. I've been trying to get rid of for years. And so we're going to give them to you. It's like, we're going to give them to you so you can don't have to go home wet. And then we'll be able to create a new logo, finally. Okay, so, <laughs> so all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So, <laughs> we started the day with the story of Bernard. We left him at a distance. We were watching him. It was a cold December morning. We were watching him at a distance going into the back of St. Pat's historic cathedral. That December morning, walking down those basement stairs wondering where he's going. He opens the door. He walks inside. Small, dark, damp little chapel. About 50 people there in chairs. True believers in Jesus. 
He's met at the door by Father John McCloskey, who's the man that God had used in the previous months to bring him to faith in Jesus. And there at 7.30 a.m., this man who was raised as a New York Jew, self-proclaimed, outspoken atheist, presider over the death of 60,000 young children, bowed the knee to Jesus of Nazareth. And he was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he crossed over. And that is what baptism's about. You know what he said? This man who couldn't get a clean conscience any other way, you know what he said when he came out of the water? You know what he said? He said all he experienced was sheer grace. Isn't that beautiful? And the apostle Paul's here to say, yeah, it's sheer grace, but let me tell you, it's more than grace. It's more than forgiveness for your past. No, this is where you become spiritually connected to Jesus Christ. You share the power of his death over sin. You share the power of his resurrection, that baptism is the great divide. Let's pray. God, we are moved. We are moved by your spirit. We are moved by your word. Oh God, as you saved Noah and his family through the waters that would one day represent baptism, as you saved Israel through the Red Sea that would one day represent the waters of baptism, so you have saved our lives through the waters of baptism. And we come today, Lord, as your church, the church at Rocky Peak, and we reclaim the ground. We reclaim this solemn and holy ground, the holy ground of baptism, the place where we die to the old and rise with the new. And God, we pray that you'd teach us as part of your people, your movement, you would drive this truth deep in our heart to this great divide so that as you bring men and women to faith in you for the first time here at Rocky Peak, they will be able to drink deeply of this powerful symbol of our death and resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.